Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law of the Universe and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical formula for hypochlorous acid, the same chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. With dozens of use cases, HOCL is the most important chemical of the 21st century. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, disinfection, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at HOCLA.org. My guest today is David Johnson. Dave is a lawyer, teacher, and writer. He has served as general counsel for several tech companies in Silicon Valley across the last 20 years. For the last decade, he has held teaching and research posts at Stanford Law School, as well as the Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Dave's client list includes some of the biggest names in science and technology, Apple, Caliper, Google, McKesson, and the Computer History Museum. He has testified before Congress and the California Assembly on technology policy matters, and as an expert witness on intellectual property in federal court. His most recent article, Design for Legal Systems, was published by the Singapore Academy of Law in spring 2021. For his JSM degree in environmental law and policy at Stanford, Dave's thesis examined software design methods and their potential to improve global environmental policy, especially with respect to climate change. He is currently working on a book titled Climate Activism by Design, bringing design principles to bear on citizen activists responding to corporate and government inaction on this immediate existential crisis facing all of humankind. Thank you so much for being here, Dave, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I appreciate it, Pacifico. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited for this. So take me back a little bit. What first led you to attend law school? Oh, <laughs> to be honest, the seed got planted at the dinner table with my family. I am the youngest of three. I had two older sisters who were in college. I was like a freshman or sophomore in high school. My dad was a professor. My mom was a professor. In fact, she was his chemistry professor in college. And we, he was asking me, what did I want to do? And I was arguing with my sisters and it finally dawned on him to say, hey, maybe you should be a lawyer because I was arguing successfully with my older sisters. I didn't 
think anything of it at the time. I laughed it off, but a couple of years into liberal arts college at Carleton and the idea started to take root. Uh, and that's the direction I went. And so from there, what inspired you to get into academia? Ooh, I practiced 10 years of trial law in Miami in the 80s and lived to tell the tale. And to be honest, I still vividly remember I had the book called Burnout. I had the book on my shelf in my office and it kept reminding me that I really was on the edge as many young lawyers find themselves on the edge of burnout. That's just the nature of the work. And I was also born on the West Coast and love the West Coast. And this was in my, I was in Miami and I knew long term I wasn't going to make my lifelong home in Miami or in Florida, not for any reasons that people point to today about Florida. It's just I, didn't, I knew I wanted to go back West. And for a lawyer, that meant, well, you got to go take another bar exam. And so I decided, why don't I just do a LLM somewhere out West? And it turned out to be Stanford. It turned out to be a JSM. And that thesis and that work and the reading, research, writing is what led me to rekindle an interest in academia. Even though I postponed it to work in Silicon Valley for 20 years, I ultimately backed into teaching at my alma mater. Oh, very cool. It's nice to come full circle like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Opportunity when it presents itself, if you can see it, is a really great gift. So tell me, what is it about design thinking and design principles that you think is so special that it can be used to help in climate activism? It's a great question. I'll try and be succinct about my philosophy on it, which is, I think ever since I comprehended the idea of design and design thinking, and that may have been at one of my, one of the companies I was with in Silicon Valley, which was a uh, sort of an organizational design company, consultancy. I started to realize that human beings are really good at designing things for profit. That's what Silicon Valley is all about. Make stuff to make money. And then I realized from both work in the trial courts and my other engagement with government that the nonprofit sector, whether it be government, whether it be foundations, etc., didn't really have the advantage, didn't have the natural advantage of getting really bright people who can build things or build systems, including non-physical systems of human beings doing things, didn't have the built-in advantage of the profit motive. And so I started to really try and unpack that idea in my head about how can we borrow from the profit sector, which in this instance was software, which was near and dear to my heart and readily at hand in Silicon Valley, uh, and I started reading Grady Booch, who I consider to be the sort of the contemporary godfather, if that <laughs> rings a bell, I mean, if that makes sense, the contemporary godfather of software design. Mm. He's a guy who basically created the concept of object-oriented modeling and started writing object modeling languages. And I realized that this stuff worked in computing. What he was doing was making software better, making designs for software better. And I said, if it works in computers, if it's tested out and it works in the computing of you know, 
information, then inherently the design behind it ought to work in human systems such as government and policymaking in the nonprofit world. So in a way, I was trying to go in the back door and borrow some of the wheel building that has been going on for decades in Silicon Valley and escape out the back door and trot over to the nonprofit side of the world, which is most of the world, and see if it fit. That's well, fascinating because what you're really, in a sense, trying to do is replicate the same power of incentive that profit has, but find different ways to build that with profit being absent to pursue other larger goals. Yeah, I think with when we get to climate, we may be in a weird way lucky enough that there are enough people in the world who are sufficiently invested in trying to work on the problem that there is a motivation other than profit that will get them to really look at and work on solving for climate. There's a whole litany of for-profit technologies that address climate change in one way or another. And those are pretty predictable. Those have been written up. Those have been laid out. And that's all good stuff. And that's going to get better because the profit motive is there. What I'm thinking about and writing about is uh, how in the nonprofit side, we can leverage the motivation to get large numbers of people to almost, in a word, organically design systems that will bring pressure to bear on the two categories that represent the obstacles to effective climate change mitigation. And that is governments and corporations, which are inherently tied to one another by money. And we, the people who are by and large outside of the power of government and the power of big corporate need to design strategies and tactics that can scale to the level of power that governments and corporations have so we can move them to make the changes that need to be made. They're not doing it. And we know a lot of reasons why they're not doing it, but listing the reasons they're not doing it doesn't move the ball. So that's what I'm driving at. I'm going to try and leverage the motivation that's there rather than create it and use that motivation that is not a profit motivation to get people globally to align themselves. Now, there's a saying, I don't know if it was Tom Peters, but out of Silicon Valley, out of technology, that good organizations are highly aligned and loosely coupled meaning the leadership gets all of the teams and departments and divisions of a company in alignment towards the mission, the objectives, et cetera, of the company, but keeps them not so tightly coupled that they get in each other's way or they bind or restrict or constrict one another, just loosely coupled enough that alignment holds. And that's what I see for the global population of activists in, on the climate issues is highly aligned, loosely coupled, and scaling to a point where we can take on corporate and government power. 
And so it seems like a lot of that too, that community building is proper messaging and communication. And we've now had 50 years-ish of various degrees of, I would say, alarmism within the climate communication sphere. And I wonder if we've hit a point, is it, has it become counterproductive, right? Because now, especially when you have something like COVID, we've seen how people are now acting just in the middle of a global pandemic, like very immediate problem that people still are just not, the human race collectively is not fully getting on board with moving past it or, or working on it together. It's been like overly politicized. How are we able to cross that chasm with something that is a little bit more like glacial, no pun intended, in the way that mm. people are actually seeing it happen in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have a ready answer for you. I will say a couple of things. One is I lived in Singapore for a year and a half from 2019 through 2020, which was the entirety of the, of the pandemic up to that point, up to late 2020. And I can tell you in Singapore and other countries in Southeast Asia, the issue that we're facing in America simply did not exist. In mm. fact, it was in the news yeah. today. It was in the news today that a British guy in Singapore who refused to wear a mask got put in prison for six weeks. And that's what Singapore does. That's what the government does. It was complete compliance. And it wasn't compliance by force. It wasn't that they were out there with cops in the street with sticks beating people. It was, we're asking you to wear masks. We're asking you to quarantine. And we're asking you to cooperate in the lockdown which they did from April through June 1st of 2020. And people comply. Why? Because they have a stronger, cohesive sense of community in that country, which candidly is backed up by a fairly powerful rule of law. But people comply out of a sense of community and responsibility. The problem in America, in my humble opinion, is we do not yet have that maturity of culture where people will put the other person first. They will put the group interests ahead of individual interests in certain instances. Now that may sound like blasphemy. It may sound anti-American. It's not, it's not. <laughs> it's the same concept that brought the founders together to write the constitution. So that's a long way of saying, I think the problem of hyper-politicization is profoundly an American problem, to a degree, a British issue, and is the result of a massive disinformation campaign that unfortunately a lot of people are buying into. In other words, I don't think we're going to have with the climate issue, the kind of politicization, the kind of politicization issue that we're seeing with the vaccine or writ large the pandemic. I was in Tanzania in July. Only one and a half percent of the people in Tanzania are vaccinated right now. And the reason isn't because they are anti-vax. The reason is they do not have the vaccine. Now, you might think, okay, African nation, they're not going to be at the top of the list and they can't make their own vaccine. But you know what? Australia was short on vaccines. It probably still is short on vaccines for a long period of time after Americans were getting vaccinated as well. So 
Part of the issue with the pandemic is simply the inability to distribute the vaccine globally and a way in a kind of a parallel way with climate. We don't have that problem because the climate problem being a global problem doesn't have a vaccine that needs to be distributed for solution. What instead has to happen is activism, which anybody and everybody can do, whether they're in Australia, Singapore, Tanzania, or America, they can equally organize themselves and generate a voice in the direction of whatever environmental climate oriented issue that they choose to voice on. So I'm not sure that we're going to have uh, sort of an organic politicization problem. But let me cap this off by saying very clearly that there is still in the climate issue globally one big lie. And the big lie in climate is being perpetuated by government and corporations. And that is that it's up to individuals to solve it, that it's up to you or me to recycle more, to compost more, to reuse stuff more. That is not true. <laughs> that is not going to get this, the problem solved. It has to sol be solved at the systemic origin. We have to stop making single-use plastic bottles, containers, packaging. And that is has to happen at the corporate decision-making level, not the individual choosing not to buy a water bottle, instead using a reusable container. But the big lie is porting, is trying to port responsibility onto the individual to extend the runway of the capitalist profit-making machinery that is damaging the environment. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big challenges, right? Because we talk about this recent rise over the last five years of targeted disinformation, very largely on the right, but the climate disinformation of foisting it upon the individual has been going on in my entire lifetime, I would say. It certainly got a lot more intense in the, in the 1990s and then has only intensified. And so it's only, I think, been in recent years where you have a lot more social media opening up where people are openly talking about, hey, wait a minute, individuals are not the problem here. It's corporations and governments having each other's backs and allowing different things to happen, whether it's massive pollution on mm -hmm. you know a gargantuan scale that you could never even hope to pollute that much as an individual, mm -hmm. but then constantly having, whether it's newspaper articles or online articles, just continuing to be like, oh, hey, you need to be recycling and the recycling industry basically almost no longer exists, right? What actually happens to people's recycled materials is not close to what they think happens to it, especially since China stopped accepting re recycled materials and, and the industry has collapsed in so many places, but it's still just, they call it like aspirational recycling, right? Like people just continuing to put more and more stuff in those recycling bins and it's still ending up in landfills, which even landfills have come a long way. And I think there's we tend to focus on a lot of the wrong things within the climate discussion of who's actually at fault, what the actual dangers are, and what we need to actually 
be working on. And then it just mm. beca- goes, gets put back into the grist mill of partisanship and people just arguing, oh, we need to do this or windmills kill birds or all sorts of different things that people are like, oh, I'm just going to stake out a side. And so it does become endemic to trying to solve these other issues. Yeah. And I, I think you hit on it. The ultimate uh, uh, linchpin is power. The power of the corporate entities and the power of money and the power, the legal authority of government are going to overwhelm the small individual efforts to contribute to a solution. Let's take the single use recycle or the single use plastic example, but you can take, you can go bigger with it. The cheapest raw material for plastic is petroleum. It's less expensive than recycled plastic. The reason, one of the reasons recycled plastic doesn't make its way into new bottles, for example, is because it's more expensive to do that than it is to make the bottle out of uh, the raw virgin material from petroleum. And until that pricing problem is solved, or there is a subsidy applied, or there are laws passed that require the use of recycled materials, irrespective of the price, which then, of course, the corporations will comply and they'll pass the cost on to the consumer. But that's still better than allowing a free market uh, pricing of petroleum to stay underneath the price of recycled plastics. So the legal or economic power and the decision-making that is generated from there is what causes us to see these (laughs) astonishing amounts of first-generation plastics on the grocery shelves. If you walk into a grocery store, particularly a convenience store, and you just put in your mind, I'm going to start looking at plastic, not what's in it. I'm just going to start looking at plastic. You almost start crying by the time you get through the aisle because everything is wrapped in plastic. Everything is delivered in plastic. And you can think about where that plastic goes. In the 60s, the big issue way back in the 1960s, the big issue was litter. People were just throwing stuff out of their car onto the highways. And over time, social norms said littering is bad. And by and large, we don't have a major problem with people throwing garbage out of their cars anymore. But in a weird way, we still have the problem of a social norm of people picking up a single-use bottle of plastic, of people picking up a single-use plastic bottle of water, whether it's Avion or whatever Coca-Cola is calling its water these days, instead of figuring out how to use a permanent container to carry with them and get water, good, clean, fresh water into that container. So ultimately, again, we just have to look back to the source of power, which right now in the economy resides with legal decision-making and the economic decision-making of government and the profit decision-making of uh, for-profit corporations. We have to find a way to match that power. And it can be done because governments derive their authority from the people, whether it's a democracy or not, they still derive their authority from the people. 
A good example of that is the Arab Spring and Muhammad Bouzizi, who tragically had to take his own life because of his con confrontation with the power of government. But his suicide literally triggered the overthrow of 23 years of rule in Tunisia within three weeks from his self-immolation on the street. The people in Tunisia came out in mass and threw out a guy who had taken over the power structure of the Tunisian government. And in three weeks, he was ousted. He fled to Paris and then was rejected and ended up staying in Saudi Arabia. And so the power of the people is the source of government's authority, whether it's democratic or dictatorship. And of course, people have the power with respect to for-profit, any for-profit undertaking with their dollar vote. And that's where boycotts, I think, we are going to see in the next 10 years, a, an explosion of climate-driven product and service boycotts. We see them now, but I think we're going to see it at a magnitude 10 or 100 fold. And I welcome that because that's really how you talk to corporations. If I've learned anything in 25 years of law practice, litigating against corporations and also as the general counsel within corporations, is the way you talk to them is through and at the bottom line of their revenue. Well, yeah, and I think that really goes back to what you're saying about changing social norms around littering, because especially on the highway, one of the things we did was just make it essentially the most expensive moving violation there was. You can get away with uh, criminal speeding for less than you can get away with the littering ticket, uh, even work zone speeding in some places. And, and we did the yeah. same thing with DUIs, right? Like it used to be back in the 70s. People are just like, hey, whatever. And that was like, no, we're going to make this really draconian and it's going to cost you at least $10,000 if you get a DUI. And we're, and we still have a huge problem. I think ride sharing has put a good dent in that, but yeah. it still just goes to show that it is really all about the incentives, whether they be positive or negative. And I think one, the, I think the most insidious and perhaps biggest problem out there is that government and corporations have been able to hide the ball within all of this. So yeah, you no longer throw something out the window when you're driving your car, but you have absolute, you are totally socially conditioned that it's fine to go and buy 30 or 40 different items at the grocery store, all of which have single use plastic, all of which you're just going to throw in the trash, or you're going to throw it in the recycling and feel better about yourself, even though it's just going to end up back in the trash. And yeah. then it's just, oh, that's all on you. That's basically, I think from the beginning, the recycling program in this country has just been propaganda. There has been actual recycling <laughs> that took place, but by and large, like the greater point is to create this dynamic where people think it's their fault and they, people don't have any way of seeing for themselves what goes on behind the scenes, right? Like people just get yeah. born into this system and it's just, oh, this is how things are and it's how things always will be or something, or this is what the price of wheat is. Or when it's, no, all of these things are just the result of decisions behind the scenes you aren't able to see. And so yeah. if you can actually get that power, you can take over those decision-making roles and be able to shift things in different directions. Now, obviously I think that any sufficiently progressive or radical politician is, you're, you're gonna be a target for assassination. 
right? Because if mm. you have actual dangerous ideas to the fundamental power structures that exist in this country, there's a lot of people in power that do not want you to get to that point. And yeah. even people we've thought were progressive in the past have hewed to the party lines within just like the corporate democratic structure we have in this country that's, oh no, let's you know have an initiative, let's celebrate Earth Day and talk about what people need to do. And here's a list of things people should be doing. And it's never, hey, we're now going to start holding companies accountable at this level. I mean, we're 20 years on and don't have any type of like carbon tax or cap and trade system like fully effectively put up because that got politicized too. But I think for when you look at like Gen Z and millennials, as they begin to take more power at all levels of government, it's no longer a partisan issue. No, we need to get this right and fix what has been damaged for so long. Yeah, I started working on this book over a year ago. And my mantra at the beginning, at the top of the page was feeling powerless does not equal being powerless. Because when I was in school, a cohort of students that I was studying environmental and international environmental uh, law with, including climate, but not limited to climate issues, we would routinely check ourselves. This is so damn depressing, we'd say. How is, we can't see a way clear. It's the, the power structures are too great. Nothing good can happen. And it, it, it's real. It takes its toll. And I decided that I have to be a resolute optimist to push through and get this book done and out. And so I'm going to say this piece of optimism, if we can learn anything from the last, what I would say, five years in America, and it's obvious what those five years represent, but even 10 years, if there's anything that we can take away, including the pandemic of the last two years, is... We have been able to now uncover, lift the lid a little bit and see how tightly interrelated corporate interest and government interests are, how much money sloshes back and forth between governments and corporations who want certain things from government. We're starting to see, unfortunately, that it exists, but fortunately, we now know how big a factor that money really is, number one. Number two, we're also learning the power of propaganda and disinformation. Like you say, for 10, 20 years, maybe recycling has been a bit of a propaganda ploy. But now that we know that something like that is to a certain degree, actually propaganda, disinformation, and an effort to spin for status quo. And we all know the oil industry, Exxon, et cetera, were funding through back channels, hand over fist, these climate deniers, scientific, quote unquote, scientific articles, just trying to, again, extend the runway, sow doubt, make it so that people can't be resolute in their motives to address the issue because there's doubt in the air, just like there's doubt in the air about the vaccine, which I happen to think emanated from our foreign enemies. There's doubt in the air about vaccine. There's also has been for 20 years, 30 years, doubt in the air about climate. But the latest IPCC re report should hopefully really be the pivot point where no one can reasonably argue that there's doubt anymore about anthropomorphic cause of climate change. So we might luckily have uncovered the propaganda machinery funded by various sources of cash 
a lot of it is petrocash, Russian petrocash, Middle Eastern petrocash, maybe even South American petrocash that wants us to continue to dig up dinosaurs and burn the fuel rather than make the shift to cleaner technologies, even if the energy is slightly more expensive. And so if there's any good from the last five, you know, horrible last five plus years, it has hopefully presented to the population writ large, a little bit more truth about the power and the raw ugliness of raw power in the hands of big money, big corporate, big government. And we at least now know how to strategize against it now that we see it. Yeah, I think it's been really incredible to watch different things happen that society has been told for so long could never happen. And then it's like, oh, global pandemic hits. And I was like, oh, well, okay, yeah, work from home. Or, and it's just, okay, eviction moratorium. Okay, student loan payment moratorium. And it's like, so you had the power to do this whole time. We had the power okay. to fundamentally change to a different system. We And because I turned, I talk about this sometimes, like I turned 18 four days before 9-11. And so my entire adult life has just been like a relentless shit show of geopolitical nonsense. And of course, it always has been to some degree. We just know more about it now. But that did, I think a lot of young people don't understand how much like that was an event which completely shattered the psyche of this country writ large, right? Like we were untouchable on top of the world. And then it was like, oh, we can just be brought down very easily and then go and waste trillions of dollars on things. And and now we're at a point where people are, yeah, it's seeing the man behind the curtain. Oh, wait a minute. This is all nonsense. Like we can just yeah. do something totally better. And there's just a bunch of different interests that are holding on to this current structure. But it's yeah. not like this was like an inevitability of fate. This is just certain people making certain decisions that had power. And so then there's actually ways to work through it. But it's just it can be such a slog for any individual to feel like, oh, how can I make a difference? Because the difference you're told you can make in recycling and driving less or something isn't actually, well, that's great and all, but that's not actually the difference that the individual can make, right? The individual can make a difference by through activism, through coming together with other people to get a big enough megaphone, which is we're fortunate now that there are that there's easier access to larger megaphones than ever before. Yeah. But you just really need to be able to reach enough people to say, hey, we need to go into the halls of power and actually change how things are organized. Yeah, you hit on something I want to go back to when you said inevitability of fate with respect to endless wars, the disruption that 9-11 caused, or in fact, the fact that 9-11 occurred. And I'm gonna go back even before I was born and quote President Eisenhower, when he said to be very careful about the growth of the military industrial complex. Absolutely. And then I wanna tie that warning from the late 1950s to your statement about the inevitability of fate. No, it's not fate. It was human decision-making that led us to a situation where the Pentagon and corporate defense contractors started to take to, to wield such power in DC that we went to war in Vietnam for too long or at all. 
that we went to war here, there, and everywhere, including Afghanistan, for 20 years. And here's what I'm driving at. Imagine if the president who followed Eisenhower had been a person who thought to themselves, agree with Eisenhower, I'm worried about this military industrial complex, and I'm going to ask a team of policy designers to go to work and create structures in the government, in law, that are designed to detune the power of big defense contractors, big money, big military, and dampen or prevent this military industrial complex that Eisenhower was talking about. And in a space of a year or two, let's say 60 to 62, if that had occurred by design, instead of just trial and error market forces, imagine the tipping point, to use Malcolm Gladwell's phrase, or the pivot on the line of American history that might have taken place. If those kind of preventive designs were in place, what might the arc of the the next 50 years look like with respect to American military adventurism or the waste of trillions or quadrillions of taxpayer dollars on useless wars and countless misery and death by appropriate, timely design. That's why I, to go back to your first question, am such a believer in the power of thoughtful, rigorous design for human and social systems. Yeah, I often find myself imagining, fantasizing about what if the Department of State and the Department of Defense like had budgets flipped, right? What kind of dynamics would we be getting then if the largest thing we spent money on was when interacting with other nations was diplomacy rather Mm -hmm. than, okay, who can we arm and what can we set up? Who can we invade? For me, it was quite bizarre. I went to Afghanistan in May of 2011 Mm -hmm. and end of May 2011. And right before I left, my family came down to North Carolina from New Hampshire to visit. And one evening, one night, like most of my family had gotten to bed. I was just watching TV with my father and President Obama comes out and he's, we got him and goes into the whole, we got bin Laden. And I'm sitting there, I'm about to leave for Afghanistan in the week. (laughs) And I'm just like, what, what are we doing? And, And then it was dovetailed at the end with that. If you remember, there's like a staff sergeant got drunk and like massacred, I don't know, about a dozen, 15, 16 Afghan people, including women and children. And I, after just spending like eight months there and just being like, oh, this is an absolute complete waste of time because it's just what happened this week was just going to happen five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 15 years from now, 100 years from now. And because it's just propping up this false image of a functioning country and has had a huge number of like economic consequences. And when I was there, I had a dishwasher who was an attorney. And I was like, 
what are you doing here? I had this, I immediately thought it was like, had this going to have this like crazy story about being run out or something like that. And he's just like, oh, this is, I make more money as a dishwasher working for the U.S. government than working as a prosecutor in Afghanistan. And it just creates these like perverse incentives that is just continuing, you know, to perpetuate things that then we start things we never should have. And then we should, we have to let these horrors happen, especially to women and children now, once we leave. As we haven't engaged in anything in the in my lifetime, and I would say not in the last 50 plus years, there was actually like a war of necessity. And we avoided a lot of wars of what you could call wars of necessity, fighting like genocide in certain places. But yeah. in general, we just go and, I don't know, mess around with people for lack of a better term. There's been no mm -hmm. like just wars. And even though you look back to World War II and you think of what Howard Zinn talks about is even though this could have been a just war, it really wasn't because we didn't get involved until we got punched in the mouth. And then on 9-11, we got punched in the mouth on a greater scale than we ever had. And it was like, oh, now we're really just going to waste a bunch of people's time and cause a bunch of carnage. And it's really been effectively pointless now. But yeah. for me, it was like something knowing going in. It was like, okay, we just killed bin Laden. We're not, we can't be engaged in like nation building here because like we're an occupying force. That's not how you effectively help build a nation. It's, it's totally backwards. And we just continue to take that same approach to things. People don't think about the fact that there used to be dozens and dozens of defense contractors. And now there's a handful because there's been so much consolidation in the industry, which means consolidation over messaging power and lobbying yeah. power that now yeah. you don't have 36 different companies that want 36 different things. You've got five companies that are like, oh yeah, what can we do next? How can we sell more yeah. weapons? How can we do this? And, yeah. and it actually just fundamentally doesn't have to be that way because we've been our own worst enemy for so long. We can choose to actually do better. But so yeah. much is riding against that. Yeah, so let's remind your audience that you served in the military, if I'm not mistaken, it was the mm -hmm. 82nd. Yeah. And you mentioned the consolidation of power which I think is a really good point and translates over to climate as well, particularly because of the consolidation in the oil industry. And remember who was appointed the first secretary of state under Trump was Rex Tillerson, CEO of Exxon. And that was because Putin wanted Rex Tillerson to be the secretary of state. Let's make no mistake about that. And that's because Putin's primary source, perhaps sole source of meaningful cash in his country is the sale of petroleum and natural gas. So going back to that power structure that you were talking about in the industrial, or so the military contractors saying, what can we do next? The first thing that pops into my mind, I'd be interested in your opinion on this. The first thing that pops into my mind is the corporations basically telling the Pentagon that they were going to pay for and buy the F-35, which I believe, if I'm if what I read is true, turned into uh, a huge debacle, huge white elephant of aircraft. And that sort of thing just doesn't happen if these power structures are not as intertwined as they are. Yeah, it's really incredible, like how much we can't see behind the scenes and how much more was obscured over the last five years that we haven't been able, you know, to uh -huh. negotiate with and finding ways for individuals to, to cut through that is just, you know, absolutely exhausting when you're just really trying to reach a variety of people that are being confronted with serial disinformation as a fundamental strategy. And it's okay, how do we actually fight against this? How do you get people to listen to things they 
actually don't want to listen to because it doesn't play into their confirmation bias. And what if you're, what happens when too many people's confirmation bias continually airs in the side of something not based in our shared reality, right? Yeah. Like how do you continue running a society on that basis? Yeah. And when you say shared reality, that really brings up something else in my mind. It happened today, in fact, was the announcement. I think it was a shiny object announcement, but the announcement by Mark Zuckerberg of the virtual reality meeting path that he is going down with Oculus and that technology. And he demoed it on television today, blah, blah, blah. But virtual reality is an interesting technology. I've been interested in it for a while tangentially out of curiosity more than anything else. But if we're already having difficulty when people live in the world of atoms and meet space and face-to-face meetings and real-time conversations on the telephone or even real-time conversations on Zoom, and we're already having difficulty making sure everybody's playing Every sane person, relatively sane person, is playing in the same reality. Imagine if we start porting our world into virtual space and just how much more warped and detached and driven by confirmation and other cognitive biases we're going to be when everybody's an avatar in the digital world of bits and avatars rather than the real world of to face where somebody actually feels shame when they're caught lying. How do you feel shame when you have your avatar lying on a digital conference room? It, it, the person who was lying in that digital conference room is just going to change their avatar for the next meeting. And it's going to go downstream as Jake Tapper said today, it's going to get memory hold and people will just move on. I think information gets, gets, much, much more degraded in the virtual reality world that Zuckerberg's trying to promote. And I'm a little bit concerned about that. The further we get away from the reality that we know that humankind has known for 3,000, 4,000 years of growing our own food and and living in face-to-face communication with others. Yeah, I think there's not really a lot said or talked about in terms of the milestone of the species getting to that point where we are taking yet another step away from that that we've had for thousands and thousands of years now and how that's going to affect us individually psychologically and writ large sociologically to what are the actual dynamics going to end up being as this evolves and and thinking about 2030 is now nine years away but it's going to look far different in 10 years than any other 10 year span I think we ever had. And I'm a Zenial. I was born 83. So like I didn't have a computer. I remember not having a computer. I remember being one of the first to get a computer, first to get internet, like in our small town. But then the rapid acceleration over those last 37 years, almost 40 years, is going to be nothing <laughs> compared to the decade on decade changes we're going to have from here on out as the you know exponential 
you know, increase in computing power just opens up a host of different possibilities that fundamentally alter like who we are as a species, how we engage yeah. with one another. I think you effectively have like micro generations, right? I'm the oldest of four. My sister was born in 90. So I remember not having computer, but she doesn't remember not having internet. My kids yeah. today are like young Gen Z, old generation alpha. They're six and seven FaceTime was table stakes from birth. It was like always getting yeah. to see any, talk to anyone from anywhere. I remember back in the early 90s seeing like a an AT&T ad for a video phone booth. It's like, I was from <laughs> dad on a business trip and he's like calling his family and stuff like that. And now, and back then it was like, oh my God. And now it's so passe. It's just, especially yeah. then you have a pandemic where you're on Zoom for a whole year and people are just like, oh yeah, daily teleconferencing is like no big deal. And we can actually yeah. restructure like work fundamentally around this if we wanted to and nobody's really stopped to be like oh wait a minute what is this really doing to us writ large and how is this going to evolve over the next 10 years yeah I'll, I'll say two things first of all i remember vividly sitting in my office in at a law firm in silicon valley one day and being blown away when i had my a, a real-time email exchange with a friend of mine who was on the science station in Antarctica. And it just really hit me hard, the power of email. We were using email for a year prior to that when basically lawyers fighting each other over email, but it didn't really drill into me until this sort of this message came from what was felt like outer space, but was actually just Antarctica. Today it would be no big deal to zoom somebody on Antarctica and see pictures of what the weather looks like out, outside that time. You know, and yeah, there's a compression of acceleration. And unfortunately, as, as a lawyer, the law cannot keep pace with the acceleration of technology. And so that's all the more reason why we have to pay very close attention to, as a people, to what government does, what our governments do in any nation in the world as law falls further and further behind the capacity of bad actors to do things with technology. The other thing I wanted to pull up out of your statement was the parallel in life sciences, because I worked in life sciences for a while, and I'm convinced that life sciences are going to change the landscape of, of humanity, for lack of a better phrase. It's going to start with longevity. A good friend of mine who was a retired TV, uh, national TV news anchor, asked me to talk to his son who is in getting out of college to talk to him about what he ought to do after college, grad school, go to work, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember just in a moment of abandon, what came to mind is I told him, you're 22 right now, when it comes to decision-making about your life, the first assumption you have to realize, the first assumption you need to make is that because of where you are on the technology growth curve, you should assume that you're going to live to be 100 or 110 years old. By the time you're 50 or 60, healthcare and longevity is going to be completely different. 30 years from now than it is right now. So I want you to change your comprehension of the length of your life and the number of careers that you might be able to have in that life. And think about decisions for near-term, medium-term, long-term across that timeline. And 
it started to really resonate with me and it blew him away because he had never had anybody at Auburn University tell him about longevity of 120, 10, 120 years in his life. And we all absorb these default assumptions about life, our interaction with others in life, whether it's going to be face-to-face or whether it's going to suddenly shift to virtual because of a pandemic or whether it's going to go into virtual reality on a permanent basis. It's going to be via an avatar where we won't even show our face like a lot of people on social media, Twitter in particular, operating in anonymity and you don't even know who you're talking to. These sorts of things are going to happen. They're real. They're already in place or they're coming, you know, to a theater near you or to a streaming service near you to change the phrase. And we have to learn to cope with that. We also have to, as a people, global people, understand that we have a voice and the power to design some of our future based on how well we deliver our message to governments and corporations. So I'm going to go back and pound that drum one more time. Highly aligned, loosely coupled, global population of people of real motivation to address the power of governments and corporations to make changes that need to happen in the instance I'm talking about, of course, environmental changes. Mm. I couldn't agree more. So how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I don't know if I have a favorite failure. The one, This is a new question to me. I certainly wasn't prompted to anticipate this. So I'll go with my immediate reaction, which was early in my legal career, I was arguing a motion for summary judgment for the first time in chambers. And I did such a bad job. I was so stressed out, so anxious. And I was doing it solo. I didn't have a senior person with me there as a backstop that I actually just cratered. I had already written the papers and submitted the papers, but I couldn't formulate the argument. And the judge was very kind and opposing counsel was, you know, reasonable. This is back when there was some actual civility in the profession many years ago. And the judge says, you know what, I'm going to reschedule this hearing. And he rescheduled the hearing and we did it over again a couple, three weeks later, I don't remember. And I had gotten over my nerves. I'd gotten over my stage fright and was able to succeed at that motion. But it was a phenomenal failure. And I had to, I really had to come to grips with the fact that at that time, at that age of age 25, 26, early in my practice, that I had an issue with anxiety in public speaking that I had not really paid close attention. And I attended to it and proceeded along my career to the point where I had 22, 23, if I remember, full-blown jury trials before I finished my practice in Miami, six or eight appellate arguments and also an argument to the Florida Supreme Court, all solo, all on my own. And in looking back, and, and now that I understand sort of the fundamentals of pedagogy, having been a teacher now for 15 years, one of the things that, as I look back, I realize is that there's this well-known to educators, education professionals, which I wasn't, I guess, until I really started teaching, 
something called the competence confidence feedback loop where the best optimal path to becoming competent in something is small positive experiences in the undertaking so that you take a small step forward and you are successful and that gives you confidence and to take on the next small step forward and that gives you confidence and each time that confidence builds you grow your competence so confidence and competence become a positive feedback loop going forward i imagine this is something they teach in the military early on particularly to officers but it was new to me and i had a complete confidence competence breakdown at this early stage of my career because i didn't have very good training in my first law firm and i just had to muscle my way through it but it was the failure that woke me up to address and solve the issue. Oh, sounds intense. But experience. <laughs> not as intense, not as intense as having boots on the ground in Afghanistan, my friend. But <laughs> in the moment it was intense, yeah. So tell me, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? In the space of fiction, I'll go to Richard Powers, the book. The specific book was called Galatea 2.2. It's been out 20 years now. He's written 13 novels across his career. He just won the Pulitzer Prize for his latest novel called Overstory. So I would say Richard Powers, and I've read every book, Richard Powers is an author, but specifically Galatea 2.2, because it was about uh, a fictional account of artificial intelligence. And it really impacted me because... Uh, of my immersion in technology for 30 years in Silicon Valley. In the space of nonfiction, David Foster Wallace's anthology, which was put together by his mom after his death. His mother was an English professor, which is why he evolved into the writer that he became. And he wrote famously fiction, Infinite Jest being the big seminal piece of work on his fiction side, but he was a remarkable nonfiction writer in the anthology of his nonfiction writing is really something to behold. Third book is probably also nonfiction, and I would say it's James Gleick's book titled Chaos, which was the first trade press uh, explanation of chaos theory at the time that it was starting to emerge out of mathematics and it gave me a restart it was it may have been the the book that started me on my road of looking at uh design for human systems oh that's a great list thank you so much dave this has been such a fun and enlightening conversation but it does bring me to my final question of the day <laughs> and that is what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? That's a really uh, strong question. So many to choose from, I'm gonna pick this one because it just come, jumps to mind. When I was young, and I think I was probably in law school at the time, maybe even in college, I don't remember, and I was visiting a friend's house, and the memory is vague, uh, but uh, 
there was a gentleman in the house who was a Vietnam War veteran. And uh, I happened to be sitting there in the living room and it was just he and I at the moment. And uh, he turned to me, I didn't approach, I knew he was a veteran of the war and I knew that he was not 100% well as a result of that emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but not, uh, he didn't have any obvious physical injury. And he turned to me and he said, I know you might want to ask, I'm going to ask you not to, but I will tell you that uh, my life is profoundly changed permanently for the worse as a result of having to go to Vietnam. And I say because that statement from him contained all the information I needed without having any stories told of the horrors of war, because this statement was so well encapsulated and profoundly authentic as I could experience it. And I know I'm speaking to a veteran in you as, as profoundly authentic as I could experience it without actually experiencing it. And I, I just think that was such a delicate, droit way to handle that topic, that subject. And I really, to this day, remember it for that reason. Mm -hmm. That was very powerful. Thank you so much for joining me today, David. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. The pleasure is mine. It was wide-ranging conversation, which I always enjoy. And I thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Thank you.